If you have a Bible with you, if you can turn it to Matthew chapter 1. I'm actually going to be reading from Luke chapter 1. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1, but we're going to get to Matthew chapter 1 in a couple minutes. So you can just put your finger on that. But we've been working on a series uh, here at Chalmers uh, called Why Christmas? And each week we've been reading this same text to start us off. And so we're not going to break from tradition. We're still going to read from this text. Luke chapter 2, uh, starting verse 1. In those days Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and they had gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. We've been working on this series, Why Christmas, for three weeks. This is the third week now. Next week, we're going to be wrapping that up right before Christmas. Again, we're going to be having two Christmas Eve services here. We would love for you to be... First of all, coming to one of them, and even more so, inviting others to join you for that. It's going to be a 3 o'clock interactive uh, children's type service, great for young children. And then we're going to be having our 7 o'clock candlelit, more traditional Christmas Eve type service. And so we would love for you to be here. We would love for you to be inviting your friends, family, neighbors, the person that you meet on the street, whoever. Today, we are asking the question in our Why Christmas series, why a manger? Why was Jesus born in a manger? I mean, did Joseph not know how to read the the instructions on the Ikea crib stuff? Like, he was a carpenter. Couldn't he have done better? Why a manger? Now, the answer comes in this way. Because there was a scandal. He was born in a manger because there was a scandal. Now, I had to to warn a couple people this week. Just so you know, this message is maybe PG, PG PG-13. And so if there's someone around you that has sensitivity, just cup their ears when you need to. But there is scandal, and there was scandal in the Bible. And we find scandal in this passage 
of Scripture. And you might think to yourself, but Brian, isn't the Bible one of these nice, easy, wonderful little books that you should read to your kids at bedtime? Not always. Not always. In this passage that we just read, we see Mary, a young teenage girl, betrothed to Joseph, a carpenter in Nazareth, which is a village of approximately 400 people, small town, and all of a sudden, Mary is pregnant. Not married, but pregnant. Scandalous. You can go, (gasps) scandalous. And people start asking questions. Could Joseph and Mary not control themselves? Did a Roman soldier force himself on Mary? Was Mary a woman of loose morals? And to make matters worse, Mary now says, it's actually a miracle. An angel visited her and told her that she would have a child, and that the child was from God. This is how that account goes. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, Just time out for a second. Elizabeth is Mary's cousin who is old, like much older than you should be to have a baby. In fact, much older than you can be to have a baby. Never had children, always wanted children. And God has done a miracle in her life. A little bit different of a miracle. The husband was still involved in this one. But still, Elizabeth is six months pregnant. She's walking around with her cane, and she's six months pregnant. It's a hard life for Elizabeth, I tell you. So, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. So here we, we are introduced to Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Remember, angels are this like scary being. And so Mary would have been, her response would have been like, Ah! Mary was greatly troubled. Ah! And at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will, be, will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Sounds like a pretty good promise. But Mary had a question. How will this be, she asked the angel, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. She finally says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. So, fast forward. Mary is pregnant. 
She's starting to show. And Joseph, he's freaking out because he knows he didn't have a thing to do with this. He would have remembered that. And so he's considering breaking off the engagement. Again, this is a time where morality was very high. Joseph was a, was a man who had, had good character, who was well-esteemed in the community. His fiance is now pregnant, and he has a few options. Number one, he can bring her to the elders, and they will stone her to death for her unfaithfulness, because obviously she's been unfaithful. Number two, he could take her as his wife, claim the child as his own, and he would be shunned in the community because he would have been unfaithful in that way as well. A third option is that he could quietly take care of the situation, send her on her way, send her out, break the engagement, and say, well, good luck to you somewhere. And that would at least save face for him. And that's what he was thinking. He was thinking, well, you know what? I don't want her killed. I care for her. But I don't really want all this heat on me either. And so he was going to break it off, break off the engagement, when an angel comes to him and reassures him that the baby is from God. And so it is okay to take this child as his own and to raise him as his own. And so now you have Mary and Joseph, and they're both on board here. But one of the big problems with hearing from God is that you may be confident in what God has said, but everyone else thinks you're crazy. And that's what happened. Everyone else in the town thought that Mary and Joseph were nuts or unfaithful, there was incredible, incredible scandal. People started whispering and gossiping and saying, have you heard about Mary? Joseph's a fool. I can't believe they did this. They start, the rumor mill starts going, right? We've been a hard life for Mary and Joseph. But I want to tell you something. God is in the habit of using scandal. God is in the habit of using scandals for his purposes. Now, if you have your finger in the book of Matthew, you can look at that for a minute. In Matthew chapter 1, we start off with a genealogy. Now, last week we talked about how these big lists that we think are incredibly boring of this person begot, this person begot, this person begot, this person that really, for the Jewish culture, they were incredibly significant. They were incredibly significant to know how these people were related to who. And so we we see in Matthew, we see this genealogy of Jesus. It starts with Abraham and it continues on. The interesting thing that we see here, the unexpected thing that we see here, is the most interesting, though. If you look at this genealogy, there are five women in the genealogy, including Mary. Mary's at the end. There are four other women in the genealogy that we see here. Now, in our enlightened 
men and women are equal kind of culture that we live in, we'd say, well, yeah, that's no surprise. Good job, people who wrote the Bible. But if you put yourself in the shoes of a first century reader, Jewish reader, and Matthew was writing to a Jewish audience, when they read this genealogy, which they would have known a lot of because the genealogy has Abraham and has David. This is a popular genealogy. But the writer has included four women other than Mary. And that would have been absolutely unheard of. So why did he include these four women? Here are the four women. You see Tamar in verse 3. It says, Judah, the father of Perah, whose mother was Tamar. That's kind of a weird thing to say in a genealogy. Again, it was a male-dominated society, male lineage. But we hear about Tamar, the mother of Tamar, whose mother was Tamar. Then later on, we skip ahead to verse 5. Salmon, not the fish, but a guy. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Okay, there's two. Fast forward just a little bit longer, just the next line. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And then you fast forward just a little bit longer. It says David, this is King David, was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So we got Tamar, we got Rahab, we got Ruth, and we have Bathsheba, who's just known as Uriah's wife. Why were these women mentioned in the scripture? Why was this such a significant thing? Well, let me tell you a little bit about these women. Each of these women was surrounded by scandal. So Tamar, these are the Coles Notes version. You have the actual Bible reference in your notes. You can go back. I encourage you to go back and reread the whole story. They're very interesting stories. But let me just give you the Coles Notes. Tamar is a woman who is married to Ur. Some of these names are kind of interesting, right? You name the kids after fish. You name the kids after, like, guttural sounds. Ur. So Tamar was the wife of Ur, daughter-in-law of Judah. So her father-in-law was named Judah. His wife had died. He had three sons. And Tamar was married to the oldest son. Now, Ur wasn't a very good guy. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord smited him and he died. And he died before he had any children. And so you have Tamar. And in Jewish culture, if a man died when he was married, if he died without leaving any children, then his younger brother must marry his wife and have children with her and raise those children as his brother's children. I know that makes no sense to us and kind of like, but that's how it happened. So Ur's second brother, his name was Onan. He obligingly marries Tamar, but he does evil in God's sight as well. And so God smites him and he dies. Now Judah has one more son. He's a little bit younger, but now Judah's going, what is with this woman? Like, I marry my two sons to her, and they both die. Like, she like a black widow? Like, what's going on here? And so Judah says, uh, 
Tamar, just wait a while. I don't really want to give you my son anytime soon. You just wait, you know, when he's a little bit older, maybe I'll give him to you and you can have a child. So she's, she's still childless. Tamar looks at this situation and realizes that Judah is actually being really unfaithful to the whole idea of, of this uh, lineage. He's not letting her have a child with this younger son. And so she comes up with a plan. Judah is going to be taking a journey to a foreign town. And she knows about this, so she runs ahead of him, dresses up like a prostitute, seduces him on the way to his village, gets impregnated, comes home, and a few months later, Judah realizes, hold on a second, Tamar, you're pregnant. I haven't given you my son. We're going to stone you because obviously you've been incredibly unfaithful. And she then brings out some evidence that actually this is your baby, daddy. Now, we can all just do it like, ugh. Like that is a gross story, right? This is descriptive, not prescriptive, please. But what's interesting is Tamar is seen as a woman who is actually very faithful in her actions despite Judah's unfaithfulness. And yet, still, there is this scandal around Tamar and the birth of her son. And so we have this scandal right there in Jesus' genealogy. Now, fast forward, Rahab. Who's Rahab? Well, Rahab was a woman who lived in Jericho. And Jericho was this city that was in the promised land. The Israelites were moving into the promised land. It was a fortified city of foreigners, and it was right in the way of Israel. And so Israel was going to destroy this fortified city. And so Joshua, who was the military leader, he sends out two young spies. He says, go into Jer- Jericho, find out where some of its weaknesses are, and then report back to me. So two very young, dutiful Israelite men go to spy, and obviously they beeline it right to the red light district, and they meet Rahab. Over the course of the conversation, they realize that God has given this this city to the Israelites. It will fall, but now the guards have realized that there are spies in their midst, and these spies need to get back to their camp, and so Rahab lowers them down in a basket from a wall, with the promise that if she stays in her home and she puts a red scarf down, that they will destroy the whole city except her and any family members that are in her house. So Rahab gets saved, although the rest of the city is destroyed. She and her family move into the Israelite camp. They marry and they have children, and Rahab becomes part of the Israelite lineage. But she's a prostitute, number one. And number two, she's a foreigner. Both of those are big no-nos in Israelite culture. Number three, we see Ruth. Now, Ruth, her scandal was simply that she was a foreigner. She was a Moabite. What had happened was that there was this, uh, this man and woman, and they had moved their two sons into Moab because there was a famine in Israel. The dad and the two sons all die in Moab, but, they, but the two sons had taken wives. 
One of the wives was named Ruth. And so when Naomi, the mom, heads back to Israel, now a widow without any sons, Ruth comes with her. And Ruth cares for her, and Ruth is faithful to her. And so Naomi sets Ruth up on a blind date with this guy named Boaz. And after a whole lot of cultural stuff going on, they finally get married, and it's a wonderful story. But the scandal is that she's not an Israelite. She's a foreigner, and you weren't supposed to marry foreigners. And yet she showed her character and her faithfulness despite that. Then finally, this is the one that you would probably go, well, duh, Brian, there's, there's scandal here, because she's called Uriah's wife. And when you look at Matthew, and you say, okay, so David was the father of Solomon. Okay, Solomon was David's son, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And you go to, hold on a second, that doesn't make sense. Shouldn't Uriah be the father of Solomon because he was born from Uriah's wife? Like, doesn't that make more sense? And yet, what we see in this, in this story is David, King David, powerful guy. His army is out conquering nations. But he's sitting, lounging up, probably on the top roof of his palace. And he's looking out at his, his wonderful kingdom. And he looks around and he sees this woman bathing. And he goes, whoo. He grabs a servant. He says, I want her. Bring her to me. And so Bathsheba comes and they get to know each other really, really, really well. And she gets pregnant. And so David's freaking out and he goes, okay, we need to cover this up. And so he, he calls back Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, from the front lines. And he wines and dines him and he says, go back to your house. Get to know your wife really, really well again. But he doesn't. He's a disciplined soldier and he says, how dare I go and enjoy myself when my other countrymen are Intense. No, I will just sleep on the floor. And so he doesn't. And so now Uriah's wife is still very pregnant, and David's got an issue here because Uriah could blow the whistle on their fun really quickly. So David goes and he, he sends Uriah back to the front lines with a message to his general. He says, bring Uriah to the front and then pull everyone else back so that Uriah is dead. That's what happens. After a little mourning period, not very much, David then takes Bathsheba in as his wife. Scandal. 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 We see in this genealogy that these women are in this genealogy for a reason. Matthew, the author, is trying to tell the Jewish people something. I believe what he's trying to say is that God can even work through those who have scandal surrounding them. Even those that we question, even those that we are unsure of, God can still use them. God uses people who are ostracized. God uses people who are rejected. God uses people who are judged. Because God's grace is bigger than the blemishes in our life than the imperfections, than the cultural biases, than the mistakes that we've made. So we see this in Matthew. 
And you're going to go back home and you're going to be like, wow, I totally missed all of that in Jesus' genealogy. I want to go back and read all these awesome genealogies now because there's such like, rich scandal in them. Not all of them, but definitely this one. So let's get back to Mary. Mary, a woman who didn't do anything wrong, a woman who wasn't unfaithful, a woman who was simply trying to follow God. And God, well, frankly, God kind of ruined her life in a way. If she didn't follow God, she could have easily just married. Joseph had her own kids, and and no one would have thought anything. But she wanted to be faithful to God. She wanted to be able to say, yes, God, I will do what you want me to do, even if that means that everyone's going to whisper at me, even if that means that everyone's going to look at me with those judging eyes, even if that means that my life is going to be hard. So Mary and Joseph are wrapped up in scandal, in this whispering behind their backs. And the result is that there is no room for them in Bethlehem. Now, let me just, again, clarify something for you. In first century Jewish culture, hospitality is one of the highest virtues that you can have. To invite a stranger into your home for a meal and for a night would have been seen as something of great honor. Still is. Uh, when you talk to people from, from the Middle East, that hospitality virtue in many different religions is still very highly seen. And yet, and yet, in a small village full of Joseph's relatives who had also come or who had been living there for a long time and were there for the census, full of Joseph's relatives, there was no one who would give up a bed or a couch or even floor space for an expectant mother about to go into labor. Above every other thing that I've said today, that is scandalous. And so as a result, Joseph finds the only place he could, a place full of animals, probably like a cave or a cutout in the hill, somewhere out of the rain and the wind. And he makes a bed of straw in the feed trough. And that is where Jesus was born. There was no place for Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Their scandal, the baggage that had been around them, even completely unjustified, had made it so that there was no one who would welcome them. No one who would say, yes, I'll take you in. People just had such a high view of propriety, of being proper, that there was no place for them. And that's why Jesus was born in a manger. Now let me just share with you something 
as I was writing this, I thought about the scandals that we have in our world today. The leaders who have fallen from sexual immorality, the political scandals that are always on the front page of the news. And yet I thought of one much closer to home. Today's scandal. Is there room for the messy and the broken in the church today? Is there room for someone who is coming in with baggage in the church today? Or do we simply stand at the door and say, sorry, there's no room for you here? The scandalous part about this is that there are so many churches that almost have like like a, a filter at the door. And they say, as long as you pass our filter, as long as you're clean cut, as long as your life is okay, as long as you don't have a whole lot of baggage, then you're welcome to come. As long as you've been cleaned up, then you can come and worship God. Then you can come and hear about Jesus. But you got to be right first, and then we'll let you in. And the scandalous part is that that was so different than what Jesus teaches us. They're so different than what Jesus teaches us. In Luke chapter 5, we see this encounter with a man who was a tax collector. His name was Levi. And tax collectors were like the top sinners in those days. They were the ones who were Jewish, but were in bed with the Romans. They were the ones who were skimming off the top. They were the ones who were cheating their own people. They were despised and hated. And this is what we see. Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. And Jesus looked at him and he said, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything and followed Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his home. And a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees, those religious elite, those who love the filter, who made the filter, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to the disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why have you bypassed our filter? Why are you associating with those that no one in good standing should associate with. Jesus overheard them, and he re replied this, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And here's the amazing thing about that. Everyone in that room, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the sinners, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, Every one of them was spiritually sick. Every one of them needed Jesus as their doctor. Only some of them realized it. Some of them thought they were absolutely okay. Some of them thought they were completely healthy when actually they were inwardly dead. And unfortunately, sometimes as the church, we think to ourselves, I got it all, all put together, and I did it all on my own. 
I don't need Jesus, and I just want to worship him because I'm awesome. And we get so messed up in that. When really, we are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find food. We are people who are sick telling other people who are sick where to find healing. We are people who can say, I don't have it all together, and by God's grace, he's accepted me anyway. And he's working on that in my life. It's an amazing thing. And yet so often, like Bethlehem, we don't have room. We don't have room for those who have baggage when we forget about the baggage that we brought in. And yet, the message of God is a message of love for all. Not just those who fit our filter, but for the whole world. This is what John says of Jesus in 1 John 4. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to also love one another. And so friends, I want to tell you right now, we need to be as different from Bethlehem as we possibly can be. We won't ever change the message of God's love and grace and forgiveness. We'll never change how we preach, or sorry, what we preach. But we got lots of room. We got lots of room for the broken. We have lots of room for those who think that they are worthless. We have lots of room for those who think that they are absolutely fine. We have lots of room because Jesus had lots of room. Jesus opened up his doors and said, you are welcome here. You are welcome in your brokenness. You are welcome in your imperfections. Let me come and clean your feet. I will forgive you. And I will offer you grace. And I will give you what you need. It's a beautiful thing. Beautiful thing. And so, friends, I'm proud of Chalmers because I think for the most part, we have that open-door policy. I think for the most part, we do that well. But I want us to remember that we can never close that door to someone who needs help. We can never close that door and say, sorry, there's no room in the inn. Go give birth in the feed trough. May we never face the scandal that Bethlehem had. May we never face that scandal of saying, sorry, there's no room. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for your love for me and the grace that you shed for me that I didn't deserve, that I didn't earn, that I could never Repay. God, I just confess right now 
there have been times where I've taken that for granted. And I'm sorry. If you can love me with all my imperfections, with all my blemishes, with all my faults, with all my hurts, if you can bring me into your family and give me hope, give me life, give me grace, then, Lord, I need your eyes to see those around me who need your love, who need your grace, who need your hope. May we here at Chalmers have open arms to love and accept everyone and appoint them to you as the one who will clean them up, who will dust them off, who will give them new life. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.